All right, come on in and grab a seat. Theological equipping class, welcome on Easter. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If you're a visitor with us, this is not our real church. This is not real service. This is a little something extra that we do before the service where we teach theology. And this semester, we have been going over uh, church history, and we've got a bunch of exciting things coming up. So if you've been to a few of these and you think, man, some of these are kind of obscure or kind of heady, let me just encourage you to keep coming because the closer we get to the modern era, the more these things will be familiar to you. So we still have to go over the Crusades. We have to go over the bubonic plague and the Inquisition. We have to go through the, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation with guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, we have to go through uh, the Enlightenment. When did mankind move from seeing truth as being something primarily revealed to us by God to uh, being discovered through human reason and science? We're going to get into all of that fun stuff. But today, on Easter, we're going to study Easter mm, orthodoxy, okay? It's going to be a lot of fun. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into uh, what is Eastern orthodoxy. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for Easter, a reminder that we have hope beyond the grave, that if Christ has not been raised, we won't be raised, but because Christ has been raised, we will be raised. And so we thank you that Christians don't have to have a fear of death. We don't have to have a fear of the future because you have uh, sovereignly conquered both. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today we're going to be studying Eastern Orthodoxy, okay? Now, I don't know if you can see, I have incredible handwriting, so, you know, you're welcome for this uh, calligraphy up here, Uh, but there are three main branches of Christianity. When we consider Orthodox Christianity, there's really three main branches. The first is Roman Catholic, okay? And the denominations that belong to Catholic are basically just the Catholic Church. They don't have a bunch of denominations because the whole idea is the unity there. Now, that term Catholic, super unhelpful. Why? Because all Christians are Catholic. The term Catholic means universal. It comes from the New Testament when it says that the gospel has gone throughout the whole earth or throughout all the earth. In uh, Greek, that phrase is kathalis. That's where we get the word Catholic. So the, the faith that's gone throughout the whole earth, that is, you have on one end, you have Roman Catholicism. That is one of the three branches of Christianity. And that one has been around since the beginning. That is the, uh, that is the, they are the original Christianity, if you want to say it that way, is Roman Catholicism. We also have Protestantism, okay? This really is considered beginning in 1517 when uh, Luther, on October 31st, nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door at the uh, Castle Church in Wittenberg, and uh, so that you have Protestants. Again, an unhelpful term. This is not a term they used themselves. This was a term that was applied to them later on because they had protested, right? And so uh, under Protestantism, let's just name some Protestant denominations. There's a bunch. Baptist. Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Dutch Reformed, excellent. excellent, extra points for that one, that one's, uh, yeah, when you start talking about what kind of Reformed are you, are you Puritan English Reformed or Dutch Reformed, what was it, Pres- uh, so what is it, Pres- yeah, we have Presbyterian, what else, Wesleyan, that falls under Methodist, but yeah, Wesleyan would be there, there's a bunch, Assemblies of God, you could just keep on going, there's a bunch, uh, Christ's Bride is very, torn apart in some senses in Protestantism. Now, this third one is probably one you're not very familiar with, and it's what we're going to be studying today, and it is what is known as Eastern Orthodoxy. This one is going to branch off of, if you will, the Roman Catholic Church in 1054. So you see here, Roman Catholicism, basically always been around. Eastern Orthodoxy is considered a separate thing in 1054, and then Protestantism in 1517. Now, these groups would not say that. They would not say, we broke off of the church. We would say, the church left us 
We were trying to be faithful, okay? So keep that in mind. The winners write, uh, write history. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism are called Western Christianity. Why? Because they mainly developed in the West. I mean, if you think of the Roman Empire, the Western part of the Roman Empire, mainly in today what we would think of as, uh, as Europe and uh, those kind of places. And the main language of focus is Latin. Eastern Orthodoxy is called Eastern Christianity, and the main focus, uh, the main language focus there is Greek. So sometimes it is called Greek Orthodoxy, sometimes it is called Eastern Orthodoxy, and sometimes it's called uh, the, the Byzantine Church or Byzantine theology. Why? Because the city in the East that is going to be very popular and powerful was originally called Byzantium. And then when Constantine conquered it, it is called Constantinople. And today it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, because the Muslims conquered it. So it's the same city, Istanbul, Byzantium, and Constantinople, all the same place. So sometimes this is called Byzantine Christianity. Now, here's what's interesting. You are probably somewhat familiar with these first two. You're very familiar with Protestantism. Here you are in a Protestant church. You're probably somewhat familiar with Catholicism. Right, you think something about, you know, Mary is there and I've got a, a neighbor who's Roman Catholic and he has a saint on his car or something like that. You know a little bit about it, but you probably don't know much about Eastern Orthodoxy because it's just something that because we come from a Western tradition, we don't know or think much uh, about it. Now, a few of our members do. We have a strange number of people from former Soviet blocs here at Parkway. We've got some Russians, We've got a bunch of Romanians. We've got some people from the Ukraine. We've got a guy from Moldova. We've got a bunch of things. So if it turns out a few years from now that Parkway was like this hub for KGB spy activity or something, I've warned you, okay? I've warned you today. So they're gonna be more familiar with it because that's the type of Christianity you see in today, the Eastern, Eastern Europe moving into Asia, okay? So you're typically gonna think of Greek Orthodoxy, Romanian Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy. Think of that, you know, when you think of uh, the Red Square, and you've got that beautiful basilica with those onion domes and that kind of stuff. That's Russian Orthodoxy. And so they all come from this Eastern Orthodoxy tradition. Now, here's why you're probably not very familiar with it. One, you're Protestant, so you come from a Western tradition. Number two, major centers of Eastern Orthodoxy have been repressed by outsiders. Constantinople fell to the Muslims, and Moscow and Kiev fell to the communists. Okay, so some of these important centers of Eastern Orthodoxy have been suppressed and pushed down due to these different conquerings and repressions. They were always under the eye of the emperor, whereas in the, the Western church, the Roman church, the pope in, in, in the Middle Ages is going to be more powerful than the emperor, more powerful than the kings of different countries. Those in the East are always kind of under the watchful eye of the emperor. They don't gain as much political power and influence as the Western church. And they never had one single, single figure as influential as Augustine. Remember, Augustine is the most influential theologian outside of the Bible. Protestants and Catholics both appeal to him because he is getting a lot of stuff right when it comes to the Bible. You don't have that in Eastern Orthodoxy. You have the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus, these three guys that are really influential in some of the early creeds. And then the most influential theologian of, uh, of the Eastern Orthodox Church is a guy named Gregory Palamas, who's going to come from the, uh, the time of the Middle Ages. We'll talk about him a little bit. But they've never had this one unifying figure that they can rally around like the Western Church has had with Augustine of Hippo. Now, these three branches have a lot of things in common. They all affirm the Trinity. They all affirm at least the first six major church councils in church history. They all affirm the incarnation. They all affirm the orthodox view of Christ. They all affirm Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection and many more, okay? And many more. Remember that when you are a Protestant, you're already 90% Catholic, okay? I told a lady one time that we had a Christmas Eve service and she said, Zach, do you know where we got that? We got that from the Catholics. And I said, you know what else we got from the Catholics? The Trinity. 
and the deity of Christ and the Bible and Christmas at all, not just Christmas Eve service, Christmas at all. The Puritans didn't celebrate Christmas. They thought that was too Roman. It was too Catholic. And so uh, remember that we as Protestants have a tendency to highlight what makes us different, which we should. Justification by faith, super important, okay? But we also need to keep in mind what we have in common with these other two major branches. Let's talk a little bit about these church councils and what they affirm. So first, the Eastern Orthodox Church affirms only the first seven ecumenical councils in church history. So to say it another way, the church throughout history has gotten together to hash out doctrine and what they mean. Catholics basically hold to all of those councils that were official. We as Protestants hold to the first six, and the Eastern Orthodox hold to the first seven. And we'll see why that seventh one bothers Protestants here in a second. But just real quickly, here's what these councils are, and the Eastern Orthodox Church does not affirm any past these. First, the Council of Nicaea in 325. And what did they see that the Bible taught? That Christ is fully God. Yes and amen. The Council of Constantinople in 381, that Christ is also truly and fully human. If he's just like you, then you're just kind of saved. He has to be really human if you're gonna really be saved. Amen. Council the Council of Ephesus in 431, that Christ is only one person. There are not two Jesuses. There are not two persons. Jesus doesn't take on a human person. We're different people. He couldn't save us that way. He takes on a human nature, what's common to us, so that he can save us. The Council of Chalcedon in 451, that Christ has two distinct natures. Though he's only one person, His deity and his humanity are not blended. They're not mixed. He has two distinct natures. Yes and amen to those. Now, these other ones you're not as familiar with, although Jeff did a good job uh, touching on these in some of our earlier lessons. The Second Council of Constantinople in 553, what did that decide? They continued to defend that Christ has two distinct natures against the Monophysites. The Monophysites said Christ only has one nature, and they said no. He's fully God, fully man, two distinct natures. And then the third council of Constantinople. Constantinople is like the party place for councils, okay? 680, 681 AD, Christ has two wills against the monothelites that said Jesus only has one will. The church said no, Jesus has two wills, a fully, his deity, he has the same will as God and his deity, but he also has a human will. How can Jesus say, not my will but thine, if he wants to do the same thing as the Father? Well, he's talking about his human will. Yes and amen to that. So we as Protestants affirm all of those. Now this next one is the last one that the Eastern Orthodox Church affirms, and you'll see why it gets spicy. The second Council of Nicaea, okay? The Council of Nicaea strikes back. 787 AD determines that the church can use images in worship, okay? The church can use images in worship. Images in worship will be a huge part of Eastern Orthodoxy, as it is also in Roman Catholicism, okay? So we'll talk a little bit more about that. So what I wanna do is this. I wanna talk about the differences between the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and what led to this split. In 1054, you have what's called the Great Schism. You have this uh, big split, the first split in Christian history of Orthodox groups, Okay, of Orthodox. Orthodox, remember, Catholic's an unhelpful term because all Christians are Catholic. Orthodox, an unhelpful term because all Christians are Orthodox. And so this is the first time in church history where you have two major groups that hold to Orthodox doctrine that will split like this. There have been other splits and schisms in the church, but usually that's because some false teacher or some heretic, whether it's Pelagius or Donatus or whoever, breaks off of the church. This is gonna be the one where people that basically agree on most things are gonna end up splitting. Let's talk about some of the differences between the Western church and the Eastern church that leads to this split. First of all, location. In 330 AD, Constantine moved his capital to Constantinople. This guy names everything after himself, okay? His kids, his cities. This created two major cities over the church. Rome became the major center in the west, 
and Constantinople in the east. The other major sees of Eastern Orthodoxy are Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Now, this image here in your notes, this is an artist's rendition of what Constantinople most likely would have looked like. Okay, we obviously don't have photographs back then, and you can't just look at it today because it's now Istanbul, there's minarets, and it's, it's very Muslim, very Middle Eastern, but that's not what it would have looked like back then. This is what it would have looked like with uh, the Roman-esque uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, designs and such. It looks very Roman. You see uh, the circus uh, there for the horse racing and that kind of stuff there uh, for Constantinople. Second difference, outlook. The West is a bit more practical, and the East is a bit more philosophical and mystical. The West is going to figure out how can I love God? What can I practically do? They're going to develop all these rules for holiness and all that kind of stuff. And in the East, it's very ethereal. It's very philosophical. It's very mystical. We'll talk some about mysticism here a little bit later. Marriage. Priest, if you're Roman Catholic, are not allowed to marry. Boo. Okay? You don't want to be a Roman Catholic because you do not get to get married. But here's the good news if you are Eastern Orthodox. Priest, below the rank of bishop, can get married. Okay, so if you still want to be Catholic-y, but you want to have a sweet wife, Eastern Orthodoxy is your thing, okay? But that's going to cause a difference, right? Those in the West think these guys are not as hardcore as us because they won't renounce marriage. Uh, And so that will cause a division there. Number four, beards, exclamation point, okay? Those in the West were allowed to shave their face or have beards, but priests in the East had to have beards. This is one of the things I think the Eastern Orthodox Church got right, is this requirement for those in ministry to have to have beards. So guys that don't want to have beards have this really tiny, pencil-thin, kind of gross thing because they have to, but they don't want to. And so uh, there you got a guy right there with some, some serious beard action going on, kind of a Gandalf figure. You'll notice the icons in the background of that image. Uh, we'll talk about those icons. Those are very uh, important in Eastern Orthodox religion. Language. The West primarily used Latin, and we mentioned this. The East primarily used Greek. That is going to be a, uh, another thing, though, that is a difference between the two. As they're writing to each other, especially during the early church, trying to deal with who is Jesus, what do we mean by Trinity, sometimes they get their words confused because the words in Greek don't mean the exact same thing as the words in, uh, in uh, Latin, right? So hypostasis or persona for the person, the three persons of the Trinity, mean slightly different things. So they're going to end up riding uh, back and forth and it's going to create a bit of confusion. Number six, holidays. There was a big debate over when to celebrate Easter. Here's what's ironic about teaching Eastern Orthodoxy on Easter today. This is not Easter for them. They have to wait till May, okay? It's because one of them uses the Julian calendar and the other uses the Gregorian calendar. So they debate over when uh, to really celebrate Easter. But uh, there's a big debate due to different calendar holy days and uh, Easter between the Eastern and the Western church. Number seven, statues and icons. By, By the way, let me pause and explain kind of what we're doing here. You have these Christians in the West and you have these Christians in the East for hundreds of years. But because of these small differences, it starts to create a bit of a drift. It starts to create a division. You know how if you're around somebody too long, you start to highlight those minor things that that y'all disagree on? You agree on the majors, but all of a sudden, that little thing they hold that you don't like, it starts bugging you. Well, that's basically what's going on for hundreds of years. These little differences, they start to think, what is wrong with those guys in the West? Or the guys in the West, what are wrong with those guys in the East? Okay? Fun fact, by the way, a lot of the Protestant reformers also grow beards as a protest to the Roman Catholics. Okay, that's why sometimes they do that is to, uh, to protest. Statues and icons. The Western church will allow statues and icons. What are the difference? What's the difference between a statue and an icon? Icons and image, they're both images. 
If I had a statue up here and I had a picture or an icon, what would be the difference? 3D, 2D. One of them is coming at you. Gabriel, the archangel or whatever, is, or, uh, Michael, the archangel is coming at you. And the other one is flat. It's 2D. Roman Catholics are going to be okay with both. The uh, Eastern Church is primarily going to use icons, okay? Which ones do Protestants use? Neither. Images freak us out, right? Because that command about idolatry. And so it freaks us out, so we don't do that. Number eight, authority. By the way, there's an image of an icon. This This is what an icon would look like in Eastern Orthodoxy, okay? So there's one of Christ. You have his name abbreviated, Jesus Christos. That's what that is on the, the left and the right with the big letters. And then Hapankrator, uh, the overruler, the all ruler. And so you have, this, this is typically what an Eastern Orthodox icon would look like. You'll see a lot of these in Greek Orthodox churches. And so that's what it looks like. I just wanted to give you an example of one. Authority is something different between uh, the Western and the Eastern church. Sometimes a leader in one church would try to impose something on a church in another territory and it would not go well. Also, as we mentioned, the Eastern Orthodox only accept the first seven ecumenical councils and none after that. So you start to see, as there are these divisions, the Western church starts trying to critique the East, the Eastern church starts trying to critique the West, and it starts causing division. And then they also divide over what councils to affirm, okay? The Eastern Orthodox say, we only affirm the first seven. Those are the only ones that are truly ecumenical, that involve the whole church. You Westerners keep doing councils and you keep leaving us out of it. Those ones don't count. So you start to get this rift. Communion. The West using unleavened bread, and the East used leavened bread. Okay, again, why at Parkway do we use unleavened bread and we use wine? We are a Western church, and that's what Jesus used because it was a Passover meal. But that, that becomes a point of contention between the West and the East. The Trinitarian focus. Now, let me explain this one because both groups affirm the Trinity and they both affirm Orthodox versions of the Trinity. So we're not talking heresy here. This has to do with emphasis, Both believe in the Trinity, but the West has a tendency to start their focus on the oneness of God and then explain how he can be three persons. And the East has a tendency to start their focus on the threeness of God and then try to explain what makes them one God, okay? On the threeness of the persons and then what makes them one God. So you have a difference of focus. The reason the Western church does this is Augustine. In Augustine's De Trinitate, he focuses first on saying, what do we mean by saying there's one God? And then, what do we mean by three persons? So they they hold the same view of the Trinity, but there's a different emphasis. So in the Western church, when a priest crosses himself, nomine patris, et file, et spiritus sancti, right? When he does that, he does it one time. In the Eastern Orthodox church, they do it three times. In the West, we have a tendency to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one dunking, whereas in the Eastern church, they'll take that little baby, and they they do infant baptism, but they always do it by dunking. You know why? Because they speak Greek and they know that baptizo means to dunk. And so they'll take that little baby and three times, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, and that little baby comes out totally saved, right? So you see the, the, the difference of emphasis there with the Trinitarian focus. And then the main thing that is gonna cause the split between the Eastern Orthodox. At this point, everyone is just Catholic. They're just the universal church. What's gonna, what's gonna make the East break off and say, we're gonna call ourselves Eastern Orthodox and what's gonna make the West remain where they are in Roman Catholicism? It is what is known as the filioque controversy. Okay, the filioque controversy. Let me explain what this is. Let's back up. If you've not listened to our lecture on the Council of Nicaea, where we walk through what we mean by Trinity. So we believe there's one God who's three persons. What do we mean by God? What do we mean by substance? What do we mean by person? We walk through all that. So I'd encourage you to listen to that. Just real briefly, this is why it's important for this controversy. What is it that makes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinct from each other? 
What is it that makes them distinct? You can't say there's no distinction or else they're not three distinct persons. Then you're just falling to modalism. What is it that makes them distinct? You can't say that one has more authority than the other. You can't say that one is stronger than the other. You can't say that one is more eternal than the other. They are co-equal, co-eternal. Any attribute any member of the Trinity has, he has it to the same degree as the other members of the Trinity because there's only one God. Remember, when we say that Jesus is God's son, we don't mean the same thing as when we as humans have a son because then we have two people, two humans, rather. We have two humans. But with God, you have two persons, three persons when you include the, the Holy Spirit, but only one God. So what do we mean by that? So the question is, what makes the members of the Trinity different? And the answer is not anything that they share in common. That has to be the same. It's how they have their person. It's their personal properties. It's a relation of origin. The Father is eternal, but unbegotten. The Son is eternal, but begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is eternal, but proceeds. So what we're saying is what makes them different is that the Son has a unique sonness. The Spirit has a unique spiritness. And we're not exactly sure what that is, but we know it has to be a real distinction or you don't have the Trinity, okay? You with me so far? That's pretty heady, okay? What makes the the son the son? He stands in relationship of son to the father. What makes the spirit spirit? He stands in relation of procession from the father. So the question is this. So, you know, the church is drifting. They're fighting over beards and communion and all of that. Here becomes the major theological controversy. Does the spirit proceed from the father alone or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? That's what's called the filioque controversy. Why? Because filioque means from the Son. Okay? It means from the Son in Latin. So here's originally how the Nicene Creed read. Okay? Regarding the Holy Spirit, it says this. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Notice it doesn't say in the, and the Son. Who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Okay? That's the original way the Creed is written. By the ninth century... 867 AD, the Western church uh, was charged with heresy by an Eastern patriarch because they had been adding the phrase and from the son, the Latin phrase there again, filioque, in the creed. Augustine defended this in his book, De Trinitate. So what had happened is you have this creed that everyone is affirming. These creeds are what make you an Orthodox Christian. And the Western church started adding this little phrase that wasn't originally there. They read it like this, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So this, what seems like an obscure theological point, it's not obscure, what is it that makes the Spirit different than the Son? Jesus, uh, the Father doesn't have two sons, there's only one only begotten, what makes him different? So this, what seems to be an obscure theological point actually ends up uh, causing a lot of controversy and being kind of this split. The flash straw, though, that actually split the church was the disagreement on communion and whether to use leavened or unleavened bread. So here's the split. In 1054, the Pope, Leo IX, excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Serralarius, okay? So the Pope, the major player in the West, excommunicates the highest office in the East, the, uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople, and then he excommunicates him right back. So he's like, forget you, and he's like, well, forget you too, and they both excommunicate each other and walk away. And the church will remain divided for another thousand years. The Eastern and Western church did not revoke those excommunications on each other until 1965, okay? Until around the Forrest Gump era is when these things, the church can finally heal Okay, over this big split and division. Now, who's right? Being a Protestant, 
I think the filioque clause is true, okay? Now, I don't think the Western church played the rules correctly. If you're gonna add this little phrase, which I, so I think it's right theologically, but if you're gonna add this little phrase, you gotta get everybody together and everybody's gotta agree. You can't just start sneaking stuff into the creeds. So I don't think that they use the right method, but I think theologically they are correct. I do think the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. And so uh, part of that though is because I'm from the Western church and I'm, uh, I'm Protestant. Why do I think that that is probably right theologically? One, it helps distinguish the son from the spirit. If the son and the spirit both come from the father, then what makes them different? One answer is how they have their person. The Son is eternally begotten and the Spirit eternally proceeds. But the Western tradition is even clearer that there is another difference. The Son comes from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son, okay? Additionally, when, when talking in Scripture, when Scripture is talking about how God interacts with, when Scripture is talking, it talks about how God interacts with creation, not back in eternity. But I do think that there are some hints in Scripture that may t- point towards the Western position. John 20, 22. And when he had said this, this is Jesus, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 through 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, notice he's called the spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, you can say that either the spirit's in you or Christ's in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you, says Jesus, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, there's that word proceeds, he will bear witness about me. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, again, this is getting obscure. This is the hardest thing we're doing right now in this lesson, and then we'll be able to relax a little bit. This text, all these texts I just read cannot be used to explain these eternal relationships of the Trinity back before there's any creation. But what it does do is it gives you this hint when you constantly see the son involved in sending the spirit, it makes you ask the question, is there some relationship back in eternity, which is why he does that. That's confusing to you? Go listen to our Council of Nicaea lecture. It'll be easier. Now, clear your mind, take a big breath. We're gonna learn about the beliefs of Eastern Orthodoxy, okay? Important elements in Byzantine theology. First, icons, Okay, icons are a huge part of worship in the Eastern Orthodox Church. If you go to any Eastern Orthodox Church, there's gonna be a bunch of icons all over the place. Let's talk a little bit about icons. The Second Council of Nicaea, 787, affirmed the veneration of icons. Now you will say, Zach, the Bible says you cannot have any images, right? But you all have art in your house. You have statues, you have paintings on the wall. If you look at the way the command is written, you don't get to have any pictures of any nature or anything. Nothing that flies above, nothing that crawls on the ground, nothing. And so you already kind of break this rule anyway because I don't think that's actually what the command is about. I think worshiping an image is super different than art. But if you'll say that you can't have an image of Christ because the Bible forbids graven images, the Eastern Orthodox will respond with several refutations of you. They will say this. First of all, that's just about images of false gods. God rebukes the Jews for images of false gods when they make a golden calf and worship that instead of worshiping Yahweh. Additionally, they will say they do not worship icons they venerate them. Okay, these are two very important words. The word for worship is latreia, where we get the word idol, latre. Latreia means worship. And dulia means to venerate or to serve, okay? So what they will say is, in the same way that you would kneel in front of a king, you're not worshiping the king, you're showing him honor. You're showing him veneration. You only worship God. We don't worship the icons. We venerate them. And really what we're doing is we're not venerating the icon, What we're mainly doing is worshiping the person behind the icon, Christ, not the icon itself. So if they were to take a knee 
before an icon of Jesus. They're not worshiping that piece of, you know, wall or uh, gold foil in front of them. What they're worshiping is what is behind it. They're worshiping Christ, okay? That's what they will say. I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm just saying this is what they would say. Additionally, they will say it is a way for those who are illiterate, which by the way is most people in world, uh, world history. Most people in church history, but also most people in world history have been illiterate. This is a way for those who are illiterate to still learn about the Bible even though they can't read. It's the Bible via picture book for those that can't read. As they come into the church, at least they get to see these images of these biblical stories. Isn't that a good thing, Zach? John of Damascus. When we see the image, his saving passion is brought back to remembrance and we fall down and worship not the material, but that which is imagined, okay? And the ultimate trump card, if you say, Eastern Orthodox guys, you cannot have an image of Jesus. Jesus is God. Here's what they will say. God was fine picturing Christ physically in the incarnation. When people bowed down to Jesus, they bowed down to something they could see. Remember the transfiguration where you kind of see this light of Tabor, this glory of Christ? When people are bowing down, they're bowing down to something they can see. They're bowing down to one who is both God and man. And so they'll say, why is God okay allowing people to bow down to something they can see, but we can't use images in church to also something we can see? They believe that you are picturing the deified flesh of Christ, Christ in his glory. So let, let, me, let me explain it this way. In Roman Catholicism, Jesus is often on a, uh, uh, you see, often see a crucifix, right? He's pictured just as this suffering man. You don't have that in Eastern Orthodoxy. The way they picture Christ is always glorified. It's always post-resurrection. Jesus got off the cross. You don't get to just think of him as a man, though he is truly a man. He's also the glorified son of God. So this is why when there are these icons that you'll see in Eastern Orthodoxy, they're always of the glorified God-man. This is also why images of saints and pictures of them are as they are now glorified. That is why they often look like they have the same or similar face and why they have halos around their head. So if you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, which I've been to, and they're beautiful, they have a bunch of images of Christ, of Mary, of the saints, and they all look very similar. Why? Because the focus is on their glorified state in knowing Christ, not on their individuality. That's not what you see in Roman Catholicism. If you see stained glass or images in a Roman Catholic church, one, the Apostle Peter, it's very clear that's Peter. The Apostle Paul, it's very clear that's Paul. Jesus obviously is different than those guys. Whereas in Eastern Orthodoxy, the, the, the emphasis is on how because these people have encountered the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ as he now is, they themselves have, a, uh, have his glory in a sense reflected on them. So if you look at these guys, these are the Cappadocian fathers, Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. Notice that though they look a little different, they're very similar looking. They all have the halos. Their faces are very similar uh, they've all got those sweet vestments and garments on, okay? You'll see this a lot with images and icons in Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, you typically don't have icons of the Father. You cannot see the Father. You actually cannot see the deity of the Son either. You just see his humanity, okay? Uh, what they would say is that you see his uh, deity shining through in his flesh. Uh, and you typically don't have them of the Spirit other than symbols that represent the Spirit, like a dove. So there's an icon of the Holy Spirit represented as he is in the Gospels as a dove, Everybody good on icons? Not like you agree, or you just understand what they're doing. Now, Protestants, we don't do the whole venerate an image but not worship it thing. And let me tell you why. John Calvin writes about this a lot in, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. When you say, Zach, I'm not worshiping the icon, I'm worshiping behind the icon, here's what Calvin would say. That is the exact excuse the pagans gave in the Old Testament. They never thought they were worshiping the statue of Zeus. 
They thought that they were worshiping Zeus and the statue was just a visual aid to help them in their worship. And so what the Protestant reformers would say is Dulia and Latreia are the same thing. There is no such thing as venerating a saint without also committing idolatry, okay? So that is a place where we would disagree with the Eastern Orthodox. Their view of salvation. In Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, there's a big focus on sin, grace, needing to be forgiven, and justification. Notice how forensic and legal it is, okay? So if you grew up, as you did in America, most of you, the focus is all on legal stuff when it comes to Christianity. You're a sinner. You have guilt. You need forgiveness. Jesus died for your sins. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be heaven, hell. Notice, it's very guilt, shame, judgment, legal, That is not the focus in Eastern Orthodoxy. The focus in an Eastern Orthodoxy is the mystical ascent to the presence of God. So it's a different focus. I was reading a book by a Lutheran scholar and he said something I thought was really interesting. He said a lot of the people that he he knows that feel overwhelmed and crushed by God's law, they can only do one of two things. They can either run to grace and realize we are sinners and we're always gonna be sinners and God loves us anyway. That's what I'd recommend that you do. He said, or they become an atheist or Greek Orthodox. Because in those views, you don't have to deal as much with that guilt. You don't have to deal as much with that shame. The Western church is big on grace because we had to fight Pelagius. The Eastern church is a little, a little more works-based-y, which I'm sure is a word, even compared to Roman Catholics. Okay, so they are gonna be somewhat semi-Pelagian from a Western worldview. The beatific vision. What is the purpose? What, what, what is the highest joy that a human can possibly have? What do you think? Dwell with God forever, that's a great, to be in the presence of God forever is the highest joy a human can ever experience. That's the goal of the Christian life, what is called the beatific vision. You cannot see God, God is invisible, he's infinite, he's not, he's not material, you can't see him, but to be in his presence is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. That's what all eternity will be like. Well, with the Eastern Orthodox, they would agree, but they would say that icons are a way to have a foretaste of that beatific vision, Okay. That is the goal for the Eastern Orthodox. It's like eternally looking into the transfigured Christ. Mystery. There is a high level of mystery in Greek Orthodoxy. They have a focus on God's transcendent otherness. To quote his church historian Carl Truman, they are proud of how little you can know about God. Okay? One of their main theologians, Gregory Palamas, says God is beyond being and non-being, which makes absolutely no sense. Okay? The point is they love to keep the mystery there. Mysticism is where you try to encounter the divine, not through rational means, logic using your mind, but through these mystical experiences and spiritual experiences of encountering the divine, and they love that, and they don't want you to push it too far. They always want you to realize God is not just the highest thing you can think of. He's in a category where you can't properly really think of him. He's wholly other, and so they like the mystery. They like that, uh, that, uh, that otherness there of God. Apophatic theology, that's a fancy term. Use that, try to use that in a sentence today, right? Just meet somebody and you're like, hey, I really like that dress. It looks very apophatic theology and you try to use it. Go ahead and try to use it today. What is apophatic theology? It's a way of doing theology that emphasizes what God is not in negatives instead of positive, what's called cataphatic theology. That sounds complicated. Here's what we mean. If I say God is big, is that an accurate statement? Literally? No, God's not a spatial being. If I say God is love, like the Bible says, that's true, but I can't take my view of what love means and read it onto God, because whatever it means for God to be loving and for me to be loving, they don't mean the same thing. 
We have a whole blog on this that talks about does the Bible literally describe God? So what the Eastern Orthodox would do is really when we're talking about God, we're not talking about what he is. We don't know that. His essence is unknowable. We're talking about what he's not. So when we say he's infinite, we're saying he's not finite, right? Or if we say that he is uh, immeasurable, we're saying he is not measurable. So they would put a big emphasis on not saying what you think God is because your description will always be wrong if you're literally applying it to God, but rather on what God is not. Because again, God is a being that is wholly other. Our language is inadequate to fully understand and describe God or literally to describe him, okay? By the way, the more you read Calvin, the more you'll see that he actually leans towards some apophatic theology, which is fascinating. Next. The veneration of Mary, since Mary is the vehicle through whom God became man, she is seen as an important figure in Eastern Orthodoxy as in Catholicism. Okay, why does the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, why are they so huge on the Virgin Mary? Because she is the one from whom Christ takes his humanity. His deity, he's always had, but he hasn't always been human. That happened at the incarnation. He takes his humanity from Mary. That's why she's special. She is the vehicle through whom Christ comes into the world. So by the way, we as Protestants are not anti-Mary. We just don't venerate her. She's a great gal. You know, she's busy being pregnant and giving birth to Christ. Yay, Mary. But we don't venerate her like in Eastern Orthodoxy and uh, Roman Catholic theology. This next one is a little obscure. Essence and energies. You cannot ever see God's essence, what God really is. What you can see are his energies, his uncreated light the uncreated glory of God that shine through in the flesh of Christ. The easiest way to think of this is the transfiguration, as I've mentioned. In that, you have Jesus, but you also see his glory. You see his, and I don't don't mean this to be uh, uh, pejorative, you see his shininess, you see his greatness, you see his glory. They would say that you cannot see God's essence, you cannot know God's essence, it's unknowable, but you can see this this uncreated glory, this eternal glory. There's somehow that you can interact with with this, okay? They also shine through the saints. So you can view an image of a saint since they have seen Christ. So Christ has this deified flesh, this light of Tabor, and so the saints have seen that, and so you get a little bit of that shininess as you look at the saints, okay? As you look at the saints, essence and energies. There's a picture of Gregory Palamas, again, their uh, main theologian, 1296 through 1359. They have a very complicated liturgy. Liturgy is the, the, the way that you practice worship. Worship services are highly elaborate with icons, candles, singing, rituals, and more. Why? The service is meant to direct your attention to a mystical ascent to God. It's also meant to emphasize God's mystery. So if you go to an Eastern Orthodox service, parts of the church are left dark intentionally. The services are usually not in the vernacular. There's a lot of singing. There's a lot of movement. There are a lot of candles. In their mind, the worship experience should look like the goal of humanity. The goal of humanity is to ascend into the presence of God, and so the service walks you through this ascent. There's mystery, there's darkness, then there's light with candles, and the the singing gets louder, and it's meant to be this worshipful experience. Number nine, hesychasm. I know that's that's a word we all know, hesychasm. What is that? That actually comes from a, a term related to quietness. And this is the idea when Jesus talks about going into your closet to pray and not letting everybody uh, see, your, uh, see your prayers. It's the practice of remaining silent in a prayer position for Christian meditation to further experience God. So meditation in quietness is a big part of Greek Orthodox uh, religion and practice. Okay? Church authority. The Orthodox Church 
is composed of 14 or so different Orthodox denominations. Syrian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, etc. Okay, but they all follow Eastern Orthodoxy. So in the same way that we said Catholics, they have orders, but they don't really have denominations like we have. Protestants have like a ton of denominations. Okay, we're like, we can interpret the Bible on our own, and we will, and we'll ignore everything else. And so then we end up splitting into a bunch of denominations. The Eastern Orthodox, they would, they would not consider these denominations because really they're all a unified body, but a lot of times they're broken up by country. Okay, a lot of times they're broken up by country for practical purposes. They give priority to the four churches of Constantinople, that's the biggest one, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. The patriarch of Constantinople has the title ecumenical, though he does not function like the Pope. So here's what I mean. In uh, the Roman Catholic Church, who's the guy at the top? The Pope, the Papa, the Daddy, literally. Okay, the Pope, he's at the top. He speaks for the church when he's speaking from his chair, ex cathedra. He speaks on behalf of the church. In Eastern Orthodoxy, you don't have that. The the Patriarch of Constantinople is the main guy, but he's mainly the figurehead. He's the guy where if you're on the news and you wanna go to somebody to represent the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's the guy you want. He's a lot like the, uh, the, uh, 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 what is it called? I have it in my notes, I can't even remember. The Archbishop of Canterbury is for Anglicanism. In Anglicanism, the Archbishop of Canterbury is an archbishop. There are other guys that have a ton of authority. He doesn't, he doesn't have more authority just because he's in Canterbury, but he is the spokesman for the Anglican Church, for the Church of England. That's kind of how the Patriarch of Constantinople works for Eastern Orthodox churches. Lastly, and this is an important interesting one here. What is called theosis or deification, okay? Let me contrast it. What, what did I say the goal of the Christian life is for us as Protestants? To be with God forever, to be in the presence of God. That is where a human is the happiest when we are worshiping. We were made to worship. As the Westminster Confession says, that we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Humans are the happiest when we're in the presence of God, worshiping. Now, how do we as sinners get to be in the presence of God? What is it? I heard somebody say, ah, I didn't hear. What was it? Be, be, be proud. Even if you're wrong, if I've learned anything from culture, be arrogant wrong, right? Step in there. What is it? The death, yeah, death, death of who? The death of Christ. So the goal is to be in God's presence. And you know, now see the focus that we do is we talk about the legal stuff, the forensic stuff. How? Through the death of Christ. Through his substitutionary death, he takes the wrath of God so there's none for us, and we get his righteousness. You see this great exchange that our sin is seen as belonging to him, and his righteousness is seen as belonging to us. You see that big focus on this exchange, this legal stuff, the main focus in Eastern Orthodoxy is what is called for salvation, theosis, all right? The word theos means God, theosis or deification. Let me explain what that does and doesn't mean. It means that we are caught up in the divine Trinitarian life of God. It's not that you are or become a God, okay? So this is not Mormonism where God used to be a human from another planet and he became God and now you can become a God too if you, you know, don't drink coffee and wear a weird little tie. That's not it. This is rather that we, are, we don't become God, we are caught up in the life of God. God and God alone is the only one who's ever God, but we have a, a special closeness to him in that divine Trinitarian life for all eternity. It's that you're so closely caught up in God's life, his energies, not his essence, that you have supreme joy and eternal life. And if you say, Zach, 
that sounds so mystical and magical and ethereal, you're starting to realize what Eastern Orthodoxy does. Okay, there's a huge focus on what you don't understand. If you press the analogy too far, they'll throw up their hands and they'll say, it's a mystery. God is a mystery. Somehow we're caught up in his life. We do not become God or a God, but we're caught up in the life of God and there's complete joy, okay? Here is how they would define it. This comes from the uh, Orthodox Study Bible. Theosis or deification does not mean that we become divine by nature. If we participated in God's essence, what God really is, the distinction between God and man would be abolished. What this does mean is that we participate in God's energy, described by a number of terms in scripture, such as glory, love, virtue, and power. But we never become like God by nature. When we are joined to Christ, our humanity is interpenetrated with the energies of God through Christ's glorified flesh. Thus, we, being human, are being deified. Or as church historian Carl Truman would say, in Eastern Orthodoxy, theosis is you working in tandem with the Holy Spirit to become more like God, to participate more and more in the energies of God, okay? That is the focus in Eastern Orthodoxy. That's what they mean by, uh, by being deified. It's not that you become God, but you are so caught up in this divine Trinitarian life that you experience eternal, unending life and joy. Sometimes in the early church fathers, they'll say this quote, that Jesus, uh, that God became man so that man might become God. And that's what they mean is theosis. They don't mean that you actually become God or a God. It just means that God came down and was very involved. By being a human, he's here. He's really here. In the same way that you will be glorified, you will very much go up, okay? You will be very much in the presence of God. Now, I don't like, I understand what they're trying to do with this idea of theosis and deification. I don't think that's the main way the scriptures talk about salvation though, okay? So I would say this. However, I think this is an unhelpful way to talk about salvation. The Bible teaches that we have fellowship with God and that we are given eternal life and that we are united to Christ. But it doesn't say anything like we become completely united to God's energies. This view makes the humanity and work of Christ unnecessary and it confuses the infinite divide between God and humanity. We will remain humans and only humans forever. There's some passages. The focus in the New Testament is that we are sanctified and then glorified, but all glorified just means is that we're resurrected, perfected, and given eternal life, okay? So I don't think that idea of theosis is helpful, nor do I think that it is biblical, nor would I separate God's essence and his energies. God is simple, okay? All of God is God. His love is not different than his goodness. It's not different than his being. It's not different than his uh, kindness. God is just God. And we break out those attributes so we can talk about him, but it's really just one thing for God. New Testament scholar, Michael Bird says this. Rather than speak in terms of theosis or deification, I think that in the Bible, participation and transformation are the more appropriate categories to describe how believers enter into the messianic story of salvation. Believers are transformed to share in the divine life that God has and conform to the pattern of Christ in order to imitate the righteousness that God is, but anything beyond that is going to raise more problems than it solves, okay? So let's back up and just do a summary. We talked about God's essence and energies. We talked about hesychasm. We talked about the filioque controversy. This could sound really technical. Here's the main thing you need to know for church history, okay? The church for a thousand years, other than the heretics, is basically undivided. You have one unified, holy, Catholic, meaning universal, church. In 1054, the Greek Orthodox Church and the, the Eastern Church and the Western Church, I know I keep doing that. To you, this would feel like West, but you know what I'm doing. They split, and they split for several minor reasons. The big one's gonna be theologically. Does the Spirit proceed from the Father 
or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? That's gonna be kind of the, uh, the, big, the big theological controversy. And then in Eastern Orthodoxy, as it develops after that, the focus becomes ever more on mystery, mysticism, which again is, is uh, going away from the rational. Not, they wouldn't say God is irrational. They would say he's supra-rational. He's above human rationality. He's above human thought. He's above logic even, beyond being and non-being, which is a sentence that doesn't make any sense from a Western perspective. But the, the focus is on mystery. The focus is on ascent. The, the focus in the Western church is gonna be the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The focus on the Eastern church is the incarnation, how God became man, and the focus is now how we as humans, though we're sinners, can be forgiven and caught up in that divine Trinitarian life. It's meant to be a little confusing. It's meant to be a little bit mysterious. It's meant to be, have less of a focus on guilt and shame. You will see some people, not all, but some people in Eastern Orthodox churches live like the devil because the focus isn't on needing to be forgiven as much. They got that at their baptism. Rather, it's now just on the soul's ascent to God, okay? So that would be a, a summary of those. Let me pray, and then Jared's gonna come up and answer all your sweet theosis questions. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we confess that you are good. Would you uh, help us as we deal with things that even seem obscure, that even seem strange, that you would uh, help us realize your sovereign hand throughout history? I pray that as now, as we engage those, mainly probably who grew up in the East, uh, eastern part of, uh, of Europe or uh, western part of, uh, of Asia, as we encounter them, we pray that we, on the one hand, would show them grace, that we have a common view of God, we have a common view of Christ, we have a common view of uh, the resurrection, we have a common view of the scriptures, but, but would you open our hearts to see where they desperately need to hear the grace of Christ, that we are sinners, we do fail, and the way we get away from that is not by trying to cooperate more with the Spirit. Salvation is not a cooperation. Rather, you must save you must do all the stuff. Would you help us be gracious to others while also teaching them about grace? It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.